Well, this morning we are in the book of Acts together. So if you would, please open your Bible to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you've been with us over this past week, we've been doing something um, particular to this week known as Passion Week. And it's called Passion Week because it talks about the suffering of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus that began and, and as it went through this entire week. And on Friday, we had a Good Friday service, and at that Good Friday service, we looked at the details of that particular day, and we broke it down. We read the text together, and we sang songs, and we worshiped the Lord um, through the Lord's Supper at that, that time as well. But there is a series of events, isn't there, uh, from the resurrection, from the crucifixion, the resurrection, and so many events that immediately followed that we just need to make sure and have the proper timeline of. So I've got a, just a very brief timeline of events here for you. So what happened that day? When Christ was raised from the dead uh, some 2,000 years ago, what exactly was occurring at that particular time in history? That's all we're asking. We're talking about the historicity of these things. What actually happened in history? Well, first there was the crucifixion. We read about that in Luke chapter 2. Next was the resurrection. That happened three days later. Now, a lot of times we talk about Jesus was dead for three days. How we need to understand that and what is true is that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, right? Because there's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's the third day. So we just need to make sure and have a proper perspective of what actually occurred. So Jesus died on Friday. He was dead all day Saturday, rose from the dead on Sunday. And this is the Sunday that we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, okay? Now, what happened after Jesus was raised from the dead? three days later. Well, there was another period of time that happened, and that was 40 days. Maybe sometimes we don't consider that period of time, but do you know that there was a period of 40 days after his resurrection that Jesus was with his disciples. He appeared to them and taught them and spoke with them, had conversation with them over a period of 40 days before he ascended into heaven. Did you know that? Do you remember that? So Jesus ascended into heaven after 40 days. You can read about that in Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. Okay, then what happened? Well, 10 days after that, a particular event happened that was unbelievable. It changes history forever. Yes, the resurrection changed history forever, no doubt about it. But there was something that followed that changed history forever. And uh, that occurs in Acts 2, and that's where we're going to be today in our text. But Pentecost, it's important to know, Pentecost was one of three feasts that the Jews would celebrate together. That was a big, they had more than that. There were three primary feasts that the Jews would celebrate together. And for these three primary feasts, the devoted Jews, those were, we understand what it means to be a Jew, be a devoted Jew. You know what it means to be a Christian and a, a devoted Christian. Can you make that distinction? So uh, I don't think there should be a distinction. I'm just saying we can acknowledge that that distinction exists, right? So you have devoted Jews who wherever they lived, wherever they were, not all Jews lived in Jerusalem, right? So wherever they lived, they would come in troves and numbers and they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast together. So there were three of those type of events. Pentecost was one of those events. And so it was Pentecost. That number actually comes from the word 50. It was 50 days after the resurrection. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Fifty days after the resurrection is Pentecost, and uh, 
What happens, I'm just going to summarize for you what happened in the beginning, and then we're going to look at a particular part of it. So here's what happened. There were Jews from all over the place, and all these Jews spoke different languages. Uh, Many of them did, because not all of them were from that area. And so they had many different languages that were represented. Can you just imagine what it would be like if we had here today in this room um, thousands of people gathered, and there was a collection of languages here? How would one message of God be communicated to all those people? Well, you would need someone to speak all those different languages, wouldn't you? You would need translation. Well, God did a little better than translation. Okay, so here's what happened. So the apostles, remember they had just replaced Judas Iscariot. Judas was no good. So they replaced Judas Iscariot, okay, and with Matthias. And now they have 12 again, okay? So they have 12, and they're all gathered in the same place, and, and they're in a public setting where all these Jews are just out doing whatever they're doing. And all of a sudden, here's what happens. Um, it says, tongues of fire rested upon them, and they began proclaiming the mighty works of God in all these different languages. Now, these men were from this area of Judea, and so they all spoke a particular language, most likely Aramaic. And so these guys knew Aramaic. They studied a little bit in Hebrew, but the primary language they spoke was Aramaic. Greek was another common language, but also Latin. I know a lot of languages going on right there. But these guys in particular were Jewish, which means they would most likely have spoken Aramaic. So Aramaic would have been their language. That's the the language Jesus would have spoken, not Greek, which is so when we have a sermon of Jesus or something recorded, it wouldn't have been in the Greek language. He would have spoken it in Aramaic, but yet recorded in Greek. Anyway, that's interesting to think about. I don't know why I'm going on that rabbit trail. Uh, but anyway, so we have lots of different languages going on here, but what's important to know is that the mighty works of God all of a sudden were being spoken by all these people who didn't speak their languages. So a miraculous event occurs. All these men were now speaking all these different languages and they were able to hear and understand the mighty works of God, it says. And so this is kind of frightening to many people. And then what is this? That the question they ask, it says they're bewildered, they're distraught, they're all these different types of words, right? But at, in the end, they say this, what does this mean? That's the question they ask. What does this mean? Because it has significance, obviously, right? This is, in other words, this is a sign pointing toward a reality, And so they understand this. Here is a sign. Remember, like a stop sign is not an end in itself. It points towards a greater reality, doesn't it? That you should stop. The sign is not the end. If you didn't know that, a stop sign means you're supposed to stop. Many of you don't know that. A stop sign means you're supposed to stop. But a sign signifies something. It is not an end in itself. So just like that, those languages were not an end in themselves, but they were pointing toward a greater reality. And so all the men there were saying this, what does this mean? What is this a sign of? And so Peter then addresses them and says, I'll tell you exactly what this is a sign of. And then we have Peter's Pentecost sermon, and that is our text for today. Peter's Pentecost sermon, where he addresses the Jewish people. So this is the first spirit-enabled, spirit-empowered, Christ-centered message after the resurrection Aren't you interested to know what the first message spoken was, the first sermon, public sermon given after the resurrection? Here it is. And this is going to be what we look at together today. So if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2, let's begin to look at this message together. Acts chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 14. So look at it with me. Acts 2.14. 
And at first, what we're going to do is we're just going to take this in some chunks, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 21 first. And as we do, I'm going to have just an outline here for us on the screen so you can make sure and track with me this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is that Peter is going to tell them the last days have arrived. That's the heart of what he's about to tell them in these few verses. The last days have arrived. So let's read it. It says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. Now, hang on a second, because Peter is clearly speaking in the language of those people. means he is speaking probably, again, in Aramaic here to those who dwell within that area. Because if you didn't dwell within that area, guess what? You would have spoken a different language. So he's addressing those Jews who were from that region. And he wants them to understand what all this chaotic mess is. And so he says, uh, Let this be known to you, give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Oh, this is what they thought. You can imagine, if, if you weren't familiar with any foreign languages... You didn't even know what they sounded like. Because you know, you can pick up, even though you don't know what words are being spoken, do you know how sometimes you can hear a foreign language? You have no idea what's being said, but you can guess what language it is. That's interesting, isn't it? But we can do that. But just imagine if you had never heard these languages before and you heard someone speaking them, you would say, that person is a babbling fool. They must be drunk. Right? That's what they thought. These people are obviously drunk. They're just babbling. But the other people who actually did speak those languages... They said, no, these men are not out of their minds. I can hear them clearly. They're speaking my language, and they're proclaiming the mighty works of God to me. So I know that all these languages being spoken were intelligible languages. They were not some gibberish pouring out of their mouths, but it was intelligible, appropriate languages for the time. That's what was happening here. Okay? So he says, they're not drunk. It's only, by the way, their day started at 6 a.m. So when the Bible says third hour of the day, it means 9 a.m. If it says sixth hour of the day, it means noon, okay? So he says, it's only 9 a.m. These guys aren't drunk. You'd have to be a pretty bad drunk to already be drunk at 9 a.m. And this is not what's happening. Verse 16, but he says, instead, this is, this event is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So what he does now is he begins to quote from an Old Testament prophet. His name was Joel. Uh, he is one of the minor prophets, minor meaning he just has a smaller book in the Old Testament. Um, and so he begins to quote, and specifically, this is Joel 2, verses 28 through 32 that he's about to quote. And he's quoting this to tell them, to give them understanding of what they're seeing and hearing. Okay, so he says, in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male, and, uh, male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens and signs above on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so two big realities just happened. The first is this, is that in Joel, it says that a marker of the last days is 
the pouring out of the Spirit. So what he's telling them is, Joel prophesied that when the last days come upon us, it will be signified by a pouring out of the Spirit. So if you're asking me, what does this mean? What is it signifying? It's signifying that the last days have come upon us. That's what he's saying. The last days have come upon us. How do we know? Because this is the Spirit of God being poured out in our midst, and we should be, uh, we should be uh, recognizing that this is what God had previously said would occur. Okay, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is this, is that a marker of this particular time will be that there is free access now to salvation. As it says there in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. First of all, let me just help you to understand or maybe recall that the New Testament authors truly and fully believed that they lived in the last days. And that's hard for us to comprehend, I think, because this was 2,000 years ago, and it was the last days then, so what are the days that we live in? If those were the last days, what are these days? Also the last days. It hasn't changed. We still live in the last days. And you might say, well, that's a long last days, right? But a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. God doesn't see time like we do, so let's just let God be God and him determine how long the seasons of time are. We are still in the last days, 2,000 years. I don't know how many days there are left, but I know for sure that we live in the last days. That is, the way that we should understand the last days is there was a former season of time that were the days of so-and-so, or the days, it's, it's, it's a period of time. There were many periods of time, but in God's redemptive plan, we are in the last phase. We are in the last days. Do you know that you live in the last days? The author of Hebrews writes about that, Hebrews 1 and 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You remember that? Again, in Hebrews 9, 26 through 28, he appeared, for, he appeared to us at the end of the ages. 1 Peter 1, 20. He was made manifest in these last times. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the New Testament authors truly and genuinely believe that they lived in the last days. Why? Peter's getting to the heart of it. The pouring out of the Spirit is a marker, it, it signifies the fact that the last days have come. The last days are here. The last days have started. And in those last days, guess what will be a reality for that whole period of time? The whole period of the last days, there is free access to salvation. Isn't that good news? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a truth of the last days, and you live in those last days. So if you call on the name of the Lord, anyone you know calls on the name of the Lord, guess what? They have access to salvation. This is great news for us. This is not the end of Peter's sermon. That sounds pretty good. We could leave it at that, right? This is not the end of Peter's sermon. Let me just make one more note here on this idea in verse 21, that you shall call upon the name of the Lord 
Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If I told you that, and you were coming at this with no context, and I said, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved, and you might say, well, tell me his name and I'll call upon him. What is his name? Would the Jews have understood that? Would Joel have understood that Jesus is the name of God? No. What did he know as the name of God? Yahweh. In Joel, in the Hebrew, the name there is Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Now, I I have to tell you this because it's significant for when we get to the last portion when we're making some application here in just a little bit. But when you read in your English Bible uh, in the Old Testament, and it says Lord, and it, for most Bibles, that has capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The word is not actually Lord. The word is Yahweh. So here's what would happen. And I'm, I'm telling you this for a reason. You may, you may follow this, you may not. But I'm, I'm telling you this because it has implication for what's about to come in, in our text. Is that when the Jewish people would see the word Yahweh, they would not say it out loud for reverence to the name of God, okay? So they would see it, and they would write it. It would be on the page, but they would not say it. Instead, they would say a different word. The word that they would say is Adonai, and that word translates to Lord. So they would put a signal for the reader In the text, as they were writing, as the scribe was writing, he would signal in the text, just to be safe, make sure when you get to this word, you don't say Yahweh by accident because you're reading it. Instead, you ought to say Yahweh. So here's what they did. Uh, They took the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai, and they mixed them together. Okay? So that when you would read this word, it's not a real word. It's a mix, a mishmash of two words. And if you didn't know that, and you were to just say that word, which is not a real word, the word you get is Jehovah. That's not a real word. It's the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai as a signal to the reader. You've heard the word Jehovah, right? Not a real word. It's Adonai over Yahweh. So that translates to Lord. So the Greek uh, translators of the Old Testament knew this. And when they would uh, translate from Hebrew into Greek, I know it's a lot of information, bear with me. When they would translate from Hebrew into Greek, would they write Yahweh in Greek or would they write Lord? They wrote Lord. So when we read Lord, It could be the title Lord, like a Lord Master, or it could be the personal name of God. Do you understand that? It may be that it's just a title, Lord Master, or it may be that it's actually a reference to the personal name of God, Yahweh. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and we will see that Peter calls his audience to call on a name. And guess what the name is he tells them to call upon? Jesus. Okay? So that's pretty significant, isn't it? So let's let him get there, though, in the text. But I just, as we're there, just want to let you know what's upcoming so you can see it. So in these last days, there is free access to salvation. Now, 
Has it always been that there is free access to salvation? No, obviously, because now there is, which means before there wasn't, right? If there is now, and it's a marker of the last days, it has not always been that there's free access to salvation, but now there is. There's a text here in uh, Ephesians 2 that Paul really cuts to the heart of the matter in this because there was a distinction between two groups of people. There were the Jews and there were the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are everybody else. It's Jewish people or everybody else. Everybody's lumped into a big category. You're either Jewish or you're not. You're either Jew or Gentile. Sometimes that's Greek, uh, a Greek person, right, in the, when you read it. Jew or Greek, a Gentile, Greek, whatever, you're just not Jewish. That was the point. But there was a, a division between these two. And Paul in Ephesians 2, I'm not actually going to read that text right now, but Paul, uh, I'll just read, I'll just read, uh, I'll just read here, Ephesians 2, uh, let me just read a couple of verses from it because you'll get the idea. Beginning of verse 14, he says, He himself is our peace, and he has made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and non-Jews. And he says, in Jesus Christ, that wall was taken down. And now he says, he, he reconciled us both into one body uh, through the cross, killing the hostility. So one new man in the place of two. So now, there is one new man in the place of two, and for that one new man, those are the people who are now the children of God, those who have salvation in Jesus Christ. And there is free access, whether Jew or non-Jew, whoever it may be, whoever calls on the name of the Lord has access to this salvation because Jesus has broken down that dividing wall of hostility and made free access possible. Okay, so where does he go next in this sermon? He begins by saying the last days have arrived. And then he says, now, let me get to the heart of why all this matters. The resurrection of the Messiah was God's plan to inaugurate the last days. And he's saying this to them in such a way as to say, didn't you know that? In Jewish thought, there was no concept of a resurrection of the Messiah. We think, well, the Messiah was resurrected from the dead. Yeah, okay. We know that. We re I mean, that's just something we know. But for the Jewish community, there was not a concept before the Messiah came that the Messiah would die and raise from the dead. That the resurrection idea was not in their minds. So Peter then has to convince them from their own scriptures that the resurrection was prophesied from their own scriptures, not only from their own scriptures, but from David. David was a very, very important, influential figure. Reason being is because it was promised to David that there would be a king come one day who would sit on his throne and reign and rule in righteousness over a wonderful kingdom of God. So they were waiting for that king to come. So they knew that there was a great promise made to David, which made David great, which made all the Psalms of David great. And so what Peter does next in this next section is he quotes from two Psalms of David to prove to them that the resurrection of the Messiah was promised in their scriptures, okay? To inaugurate these last days of which the tongues were a sign and marker of the last days. All that makes sense? I hope that it does. 
So look with me at the next section of text. Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The word pangs there, I know it's not a word you use probably, but it literally means birth pains. In other places, it's the pains associated with birth. A, in other words, a sharp, immediate, distinct pain. And it says, and that was removed from him. The pain of death was removed from him. In other words, he was raised from the dead, right? Okay, so he just did a summary here of, of the passion of Christ, his sufferings, uh, that includes like his, his rejection among men, that people hated him, they scoffed at him, right? And he was uh, under trial and he was convicted as a sinner even though he wasn't a sinner. And then they put him to death and they flogged him, they beat him, put a crown of thorns on him, they mocked him, they reviled him, they led him away to his death, he was nailed to a cross and he died. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And Peter just summarized all that in these few verses. What's his point? Where's he getting to? He says in verse 25, for David says concerning him. So he's using a psalm, Psalm 16, to prove that David looked into the future as a prophet and prophesied about the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. He says, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life and you will make full gladness with your, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's the quotation. Peter again, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Why did he say that? Because he said just previously that you will not abandon your Holy One to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, what he's saying is David was not talking about himself because David died and he was buried and we can go visit his tomb to this very day. So obviously it wasn't about David. So, Peter says, let me help you interpret this properly. Verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So, what Peter is saying there is make sure that you understand that David was a prophet of God and he was looking into the future and that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Christ. And to us, Christ is only associated with Jesus Christ. I know that. But for them, the word Christ was not only associated with Jesus Christ. They understood what the word actually meant. And the word actually means an anointed one. And so in Greek, that's Christos. And so we transliterate that into Christ. In the Hebrew, 
the word anointed one, the word for anointed one is Mashiach. And so that is an anointed one, which we transliterate into Messiah. So when they read Christos or Christ, the literal word was Messiah. So they said that he foresaw, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. And so he's saying, see, the scriptures prove that the Messiah was to die and then be raised from the dead. And the resurrection precedes immediately his exaltation. And upon his exaltation, he sent the Spirit and inaugurated the last days. That's his whole argument. But here's where he talks about his exaltation next, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are yourselves seeing and hearing. See, he says that's where it came from. You see, Jesus died, and he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, just like David said he would, and he didn't just ascend, and now his spirit is somewhere, or his body, he's just walking around on earth. No, instead, he ascended. How much later? 40 days after. He ascended to the Father. He has been exalted. To be exalted means to be raised up. He was raised up. How high? He was raised up all the way to the throne of God. Can you get much higher than that? He was exalted far above all things. And he is now seated at the right hand of God. Now, he proves this again by quoting one more psalm of David. It's a shorter one this time. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, this is a quotation, Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110.1. So what is he saying in this? He is saying that David said in Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord. And that's a weird phrase. It's like, and my mom said to my mom, and that doesn't make, <laughs> that doesn't make much sense to me, um, but it's actually two different words. That's, but, but here, it's translated the same for the reason I told you previously. The Lord said to my Lord, that is my Yahweh, that is Yahweh said to my Adonai. The Lord God, personal name of God, said to my Lord. Two distinct figures. That's interesting. Who's the other figure? Yahweh said to my Lord. Who's that? Was it David? That's how they had interpreted it. Talking about the, the reign of David and his rule and his, uh, his throne being exalted. So it's like, oh, David and his throne and his generations. That, but Peter is saying, no, you've, you've misunderstood. Yahweh said to my Lord. And do you know who that Lord is? He's going to tell us. We don't need to answer yet. Keep, keep it in suspense. But he said, Clearly, this is not David. There's, he's speaking of another figure. That figure has not yet been revealed. So, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. So, what he's been saying, though, is that Jesus died, and he was resurrected, as David even said back in Psalm 16, and that he would be exalted to the right hand of God. And that's where he is today. Without the resurrection... There is no intercession. Without the resurrection, there is no pouring out of the Spirit. Did you know that? But it doesn't stop at the resurrection. It goes all the way to his exaltation. 
Jesus was not just a figure walking around here after his resurrection. Now he was for about 40 days. But then he rose. Where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father and, and sat in his seat at the right hand of the Father. Having equal power and authority, seeing him as Lord, the exalted one. And that's where he remains. And when he went, he sent, he poured out. That's a good imagery, isn't it? He poured out his spirit. And he says, and that's what you're seeing and hearing today. Without the resurrection of the Messiah, none of this would be possible. So don't you see that the resurrection of the Messiah was God's plan to inaugurate the last days that you now live in? And what is the most signifying fundamental reality of those last days? That there is free access to salvation. How did that free access become possible? By all the Messiah did. By his suffering and by his death and by him standing in the place of sinners as we've been looking at through the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 for so many weeks, right? So what could you possibly have to say after that? Well, his big conclusion. Here's the conclusion. It's one verse, one sentence. Ready for the big conclusion of the sermon? It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of a thing we say, isn't it? It's all one thing. What does it mean that he was made both Lord and Christ? Did his resurrection make him the Christ? No. He was already the Christ. But if he truly was the Christ, guess what necessarily would happen? He was raised from the dead. Otherwise, if he wasn't raised from the dead, guess what that would prove? That he evidently wasn't the Christ, right? So his resurrection proves that he is the Christ. Now, did his resurrection make him Lord? No, he was already who he was. But it's very similar to what Paul spoke in Philippians. I want you to look at it with me. Uh, because this is what early on was, was called a hymn. That it, it's, it's an early Christian song that the believers would sing together. Um, and it's recorded for us in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. So turn in your Bible and look at it with me just briefly. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when it says he has been highly exalted, we know that about the suffering servant in Isaiah, he would be exalted. But it says that what the name that was bestowed on him is the name that is above every name. Tell me, what is the name that is above every name? It is Yahweh is the name above every name. And so when it says that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, what is it saying? 
that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Yahweh. That's what it's saying. So the conclusion here is that his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father has proven definitively that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he can do all that he said he could do. So, okay, we understand that. What was the reaction of the crowd to this message? What do you think that it was? Before even considering, I mean, just what, what the text has to say, just what do you think that this large crowd of people, they hear this message, I've done nothing for you this morning other than re-preach Peter's sermon. You know that, right? I mean, I've just, I've, I've said it and I've explained it. I've given you Peter's sermon. So if you're expecting some kind of big motivational speech as a sermon, you're probably really disappointed. That's not what a sermon is. So what is being said here? And how did the people respond to this sermon? What should a response to a sermon look like? Let's look at that next. Verses 37 through 41, back in Acts chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And so that, that's kind of an interesting reaction already, isn't it? Why did they have that reaction? Because they understood the words that he just said. They understood that God in the flesh presented himself to us and we hated him and we rejected him and we killed him. We did not even recognize our God. We were so far removed from, we misunderstood who our God is so much we didn't even see him. What a horrible reality. Could it be that for us, even us who are believers, that many times we have misrepresented who God is, even in our own minds. And so when God presents himself in his word or truth, that we don't even properly see him because we've misidentified who God even is. Surely God would never say that. Surely God would never do that. No, 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 not my God. He would never do that. If you're presented with the true God of the scriptures, we need to make sure that we have a proper understanding of who he truly is so that when he presents himself, we don't miss him and we reject that reality and we hate it. That's exactly what the people did when they crucified Jesus Christ. They did not recognize their God. They hated him and they killed him. I want you to see who God is. And this is why I want you to have the word of God. Because we believe truly, faithfully, that faith in God comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There is nothing I can do to convince you. There is no amount of historical data that I can give you. There is no argumentation that I can present to you to show you that in fact, God is true. The scriptures are reliable. There are a lot of people who question the Bible. You know, all the textual variants in there, I don't know if the Bible's trustworthy. There's nothing I can do. There's no amount of information I can give you that can convince you in your mind that what was spoken of Jesus Christ is a true historical event and that we truly do live in the last days and that the Spirit of God is truly present and there truly is access to salvation for all. That is the day that we live in. But I can't convince you of that. I can't cut you to the heart. 
but the Spirit of God can and does. So I want to look at just three uh, ways that the response of the people can be broken down. And the first is this, spirit-enabled conviction. Spirit-enabled conviction, meaning I can't convict you of sin. I can't convict you that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. I can't convict you that the word of God is trustworthy and faithful in all that it says. I can't do that. I can, no one else can either. You know that, right? It's not this that I'm incapable. No one is capable. No one can convince you of these things. It takes a work of God. It takes a work of God. And I just wonder for you, maybe those who have not previously heard and understood this message, is it possible that God has helped you to understand that message here and now? and that you have been cut to the heart by this message? That you realize that there is a God who truly does love you, who sent his son to the earth to live as God in the flesh, who lived a perfect sinless life and yet was rejected and hated. And he went to a cross. He died for that reason. Why did he die? He died because someone has to pay for your sins. He didn't pay for his own sins. He had no sins. He had to pay for your sins. And he did it willingly. He willingly laid his life down for you. And yet, if you have lived any amount of time on this earth not calling on his name, you have rejected and hated your God. The scriptures tell us that we once were haters of God, only doing evil. But I want to call you this morning to understand that you live in an era in the last days where free access to salvation is made available to you. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. What name do you need to call upon? The name of Jesus Christ. We'll get to more of that here in a second. But first, what happens by, this, by the Spirit in this crowd is that the Spirit helps them to see. It opens, the, the Spirit opens their eyes. I didn't mean to say it. The Spirit opens their eyes. The, the Spirit's not an it, it's a he, it's a person of God. Uh, so the Spirit opens their eyes to see and to hear and to understand a message they had never previously understood. And isn't that the way it is for all of us? Can you reflect back on the days when your eyes were blind and your ears were deaf to the gospel message? What dark days those were. And can you remember the time when the cover was lifted and you saw? And your heart was cut? Do you remember that? And do you remember the pain and sorrow for your own sin? And do you remember the joy and comfort of your salvation? And do you remember what it did to you? And do you remember how it gave you passion for the Lord? Where are those days? So this leads us to the next point, is that not only was there spirit-enabled conviction, there was also spirit-enabled repentance. Do you know that once you become aware of sin and you're convicted of sin, there's a next step? Do you know what that next step is? That next step is repentance, and it has it here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, what name? Call upon the name of the Lord. What name are we calling upon? Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the name. How do I call on the name of the Lord to be saved? You call on the name of Jesus. You repent in his name. 
You pray in his name. You're baptized in his name. The name of Jesus is the access to salvation, isn't it? The name of Jesus is access to salvation. So he says, repent and be baptized. Baptism is an external display of an internal reality that you have repented. So you repent. And after you have repented of your sins, you are baptized to show the world that you have repented of your sins and believed on Jesus Christ as your Savior. That makes sense, right? So here's what's happening is that you're, you're, you're facing this way at sin and you are cut to the heart and you realize the way you're facing in this life is not right. What you're doing in this life is not right. That you have rejected your Savior and you have all this other list of sins in your life. You say, that's not right. That's not good. I recognize that and I have sorrow and grief that I have done this. So you just stay there? Is that where you stay? Is that where you live? I live looking at my sin and being sorrowful. Sometimes we like to do that, right? But that's not the world we're called to live in. So what's the next step? Repentance literally is a turning away from it. So I'm not, I'm not even looking that way anymore. I'm, I'm going back. I'm going here now. This is my, I've, I recognize my sin. I see it. I'm convicted of it. But then I repent of it. I acknowledge it before God and I turn away from it. I've made a distinction in my mind between those things that are sinful and not sinful. And now I'm facing the Lord. But guess what? That's not even the last step. That's not even the last step in what we do. Before I go to this last step, you have to also understand that repentance is only enabled by the Spirit of God. I know that it's a thing that we say to people, I just wish you'd get your life cleaned up. I just wish you'd get your life cleaned up and start going to church again. That's it. Just, and if you put money in the offer, that's better. Right? Read your Bible at home. I mean, you're getting gold stars at this point. That's the best you can do. This is not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is ultimately about the recognition of sin, the repentance of it, enabled by the Spirit and relying upon the grace of Jesus Christ and His work and all that He has done for us. It's a humbling of ourselves before the cross, relying on Him and His work, not on us. Now, should you turn away from sin? Yes, but if you're trying to convince a non-believer to repent of their sin, you must understand they can't. They can't. A sinner cannot stop being sinful. They are enslaved to their sin. But it becomes heartbreaking reality for us, doesn't it? When we see people in sin and we say, turn from it, just come on, stop doing that. And all of a sudden you say, but you've been saying that you're a believer. But what I think I'm recognizing is that there is no spiritual fruit of righteousness in your life. You've never turned from sin. You've never repented of sin. Maybe you don't understand. And so you get frustrated with a person who calls themselves a believer, but there's no fruit in their life to show that they truly are a believer and that their life is a living example of all the Spirit of God has done. Because if you are truly a believer, that means the Spirit of God lives in you and that you are producing spiritual fruit, which begins with the conviction of sin and the repentance of sin. So we've understood sin, we repent of it, we turn away from it, but that's not the last thing. There's one more step here, and that is spirit-enabled obedience. Spirit-enabled obedience. Did you notice in our text, and maybe I didn't even read it yet, but in verse 40 it says, now with many other words he bore witness. So what does that tell us automatically? 
is that what we have here is, is in, in some ways a summary of what was spoken because there were many other words that were spoken that are not recorded, but we have some of them. So, with many other words, he continued to bear witness and he exhorted them and he said, save yourself from this crooked generation. So, when he says save yourself, do we literally think he means that you can like save yourself? Save yourself. That's not what he meant, obviously. We know that in context. He means call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Why? Because the last days have come and free access to salvation is here. So call upon him. Save yourself. You can. That's the last days. We live here now. There is salvation available. Just call on his name. That's all you need to do. Call on his name. That's it. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. So of that great crowd, 3,000 of them heard this, and they truly heard it, and they truly believed it, and they were cut to the heart, and they repented of their sins, but there was something else that followed. And that's, if you just look at verse 42 with me, you'll see it. Look at verse 42. What did they do? And maybe this is a question for any, any believer. You become a believer. What do you do now? Okay, I've heard the message you're preaching. I, I see that Jesus, a real, real guy, and he was God in the flesh. He took our penalty for sins. He died. On the third day, he rose again from the grave. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He has sent the Spirit. He has inaugurated the last days. Access to salvation is free and open to any who call on him. I understand all of that, and I believe it, and I've, I realize I'm a sinner. Okay, what do I do now? What do I do with my life? Just keep living it as you did before. Just go back home and have a meal and keep pressing on. Or does your life fundamentally change forever? Your life changes forever. Your life will never be the same again. And here's how we know. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Was what they did with their life changed from that point on? And do you see them devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching? Is teaching of the word of God important for the believer? Is what we're doing now in this moment important? Yes, it is very important. If you would have abandoned this corporate moment back in that day, you would have not even been associated with the believing community. We have many people who call themselves Christians that have no association with the fellowship or with the teaching of God's word, and yet they call themselves Christian. This was unheard of. This was unheard of. What they did, it transformed their life forever. And it changed where they wanted to spend their days, their time, their efforts, their energy. And they wanted to devote themselves and they understood that it was important. So what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, breaking of bread, which I believe most likely is in reference to the ordinances, the, uh, the Lord's Supper, and also the prayers. This is all about a corporate gathering. This is all about being with the people of God. So, how is this obedience enabled? 
not just because you decide one day it's better to go to church than to not go to church. That's not it. It's a fundament, It's a conviction of the heart that you have seen in the scriptures that it is good for you to be with the people of God in the teaching of God, with the ordinance of God, praying with the people of God, singing songs with the people of God. This is good, this is right, this is necessary for all who have understood this gospel message. So there is obedience that follows. If you have not, if you find yourself having not been obedient to all the scriptures call us to, just remember, the believer does not live just looking at their disobedience and wallowing in it. What do you do? What are you supposed to do? Say, okay, I, okay, I get it. I'm cut to the heart. Now, what should you do? Turn away from it and walk in the proper direction. You don't just stand there looking at all the things Christians should do. You read your Bible and you say, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Well, good for them. I'm not. And they, you, just, you look at all the things that Christians should be doing and you neglect it, but you're facing this way, but you're not actually doing anything. Again, kind of unheard of in the Christian community originally. So what do we do with this message? I think there is, a, there is application for everyone, whether you have never been a believer and you're here visiting. So happy that you are, by the way, if you're here with us. Great day to come and be part of the fellowship of the people of God. Thank you for coming. If you are a believer, maybe you're a new Christian and you're wondering what obedience looks like for you. Obedience looks like investing in the word of God, being at a biblical church that preaches the word of God so that you might understand better what it looks like to follow the word of God and be in a community of people that can hold you accountable to following after all God has for your life. That is the intention. Now, if you're a seasoned believer, you've been a believer for some time, and you say, I've been doing all these things. The message does not change for you, you know. You have never arrived at the point of utter sanctification. Unless you come from the holiness movement, you don't think that there is an utter sanctification that happens in the believer. We do not believe that. We do not believe the scriptures speak of that. Okay? So... As we live this life, you, the believer, this Easter morning, whether you've been a believer for 40 years, four years, four months, I don't know, you know that there is always work to do, that we always are looking this way. And as we live our Christian life, and the more we come to understand, we see this with clearer focus. A new believer sees this, and it's all blurry, but you kind of get it. The seasoned Christian ought to see all of this, and now I'm looking at details, right? Right? So the believer is never done in the sanctification process, meaning that you must always be looking at where am I sinful? And you recognize it and you're cut to the heart about it and you turn from it and you walk in obedience the other way. It never ends. It never, ever ends. Until one day when Christ comes in glory, because you know as Psalm 110.1 says, he must sit at the right hand until he has made all of his enemies his footstool. And then in that day, he will come and consummate all of time and it will come to a glorious end where we, those, those who have believed this message, will live with him in glory for eternity. That's real. 
And it's all because of the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with one final passage, and it's just two verses. And the reason I'm doing this is because I gave you a lot of information today. Uh, maybe you're not used to a lot of information. If you come regularly, you're used to a lot of information. But I didn't want you to get lost in where we've gone so far. And so what I believe Acts 4, 11, and 12 is, is if Peter, if someone said to Peter, can you just summarize that whole sermon for me just in a couple sentences? Like if you leave here today and someone says, what was the sermon about today? You say, well, uh, wow, um, I where to begin? I don't know. Uh, there was a lot of information. I know that, first of all. Um, but so if you've, if you've missed at any point the big picture, I believe it is summarized in Acts 4, 11, and 12. And Paul, or Peter just, he says, listen, I've only got a short time here and I'm preaching to a different group and here's what he says. Same message, but compacted. Ready? Acts 4, 11, and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So just right there, the main point about that is Jesus Christ exists, but you've not recognized him, and he's the most important part of the whole thing. The most important part of anyone's life is Jesus Christ, and up until this point, you've rejected him. And you, you don't have anything if you don't have a cornerstone, by the way. The building can't stand. So up until this point, you've rejected Jesus, but then he says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. It is the name of Jesus Christ. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is true. That's a reality for today. And it's something that all of us need to reflect on as we consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He made all these things possible for us. So the resurrection, far more than just a day of celebration, far more than whatever kind of gatherings you might have today, Easter Sunday, looking your best, whatever it may be, although that's good, that's not the end of it, is it? What is Easter all about? It's a remembrance of a signifying event that occurred in history, that salvation has been made available to you. And it says, by which you must be saved. Saved from what? I don't feel like I need to be saved. Saved from what? I have a great life. The thing you need to be saved from is the punishment for your sin that is coming upon you at your death. You know that you have sinned against a holy God, and if you don't deal with that here and now, you will deal with it for the rest of eternity. So if you want to be saved and spared that wrath and that punishment of God, then there is no other name you need to look to other than Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray together.